Imagine, if you will, the year is 1870, only five years after the ratification of the Emancipation Proclamation. Picture Austin, Texas, a place where the shimmering heat dances over the dusty trails and the air itself seems to echo with the hard-fought progress of a people. A particular group in this southern city, a community of black individuals, sought to honor a day of profound importance to them, the 19th of June. Juneteenth. As if gathered at the crossroads of history, they convene a grand assembly, a convocation of souls, each individual ready to stand up and passionately argue their point of view. To dispute the cause, they were debating whether to celebrate Juneteenth or the 4th of July as the day of freedom. And as history bears witness, Juneteenth emerged victorious. But why, you might ask? Well, it wasn't by chance. It was by the virtue of Juneteenth's powerful resonance. An archival newspaper recounts the event, and it reads, A mass meeting of colored people was called at the courthouse and by large majority stuck to the 19th of June. They said that the 4th of July was a very good liberty day for the white man, but that it never brought their freedom. They knew that freedom come on the 19th of June. Through the order of General Granger, which date is indelibly fixed in the ward's mind as Juneteenth, unquote. And thus, my friends, Juneteenth was born. Today, we are going to dive deep into the past, not merely to observe history, but to engage in it, to understand it and to explore the profound resonance that Juneteenth holds as it now stands as a national holiday. Welcome to another episode of the Humanity Archive podcast. I am your gracious host, Jermaine Fowler. Today, I have a story from history that you may have never heard before, but even if you have, you've never heard it in the way that I'm going to tell it. Today, we are going to talk about the history of Juneteenth. Now, let's get into it. to take you on another journey back to a decade ago. Juneteenth, a festival of freedom, a beacon of emancipation was barely a whisper in the collective American psyche. And today it's a roar, an echo reverberating through the mountains and valleys of our social and cultural landscape. And if you find yourself a stranger to the origins of Juneteenth, the essence of Juneteenth, don't despair. You aren't alone. Don't feel bad. If I was in a room with 100 people and I asked everyone who learned about Juneteenth during their school education to raise their hand, I probably would only see a few palms up in the air. Columbus Day, 
a commemoration, many view as a painful reminder of the advent of enslavement in the Americas, is a familiar face. Yet Juneteenth, the day marking the end of that very horror, remains a stranger to many. Why is this dichotomy present in the education of our history? What is Juneteenth? Well, in short, it's a celebration of black emancipation and liberation where in jubilation we uplift and recognize and remember enslaved people who made their way to freedom in the United States of America. Its roots dig deep into the soil of Galveston, Texas, a town where even as the Civil War gasped its final breath in 1865, the chains of enslavement clung tightly to many. Can you hear the whispers of history telling tales of those who remained enslaved even as freedom was proclaimed elsewhere? Juneteenth began as their celebration, a day for those who were among the last to be told they were free, known by many names, Freedom Day, Jubilee Day, Liberation Day, Emancipation Day. It's now a nationally recognized holiday, but that begs the question, how did it rise from the ashes of obscurity to the grand stage of recognition? How did it go from a holiday largely recognized in the black community, rarely thought of, outside of it and become a national holiday. I'm glad you asked. Picture 2020, a year that will forever be etched into our collective memory, a year of heightened awareness, a year that painted in stark colors the grim reality of black suffering, the plight of black society following the horrifying murders of Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and Ahmaud Arbery. The shockwave of these events ignited a sudden explosive interest in black history, including Juneteenth, culminating in its recognition as a federal holiday. And then the giants of industry like Tesla and Ford and Nike and Twitter had all made the day an official company holiday. States one by one started to acknowledge its significance and people who you've never seen talk about Juneteenth before. Well, they were talking about it, too. A good thing, right? Well, I don't know. Honestly, I'm unsure how I feel about the explosion of interest in Juneteenth by corporations. On the one hand, it's fantastic that people are aware of it and want to celebrate the freedom of black people. It's great the story is being told and reflected on, but the question becomes, is the story being really told and reflected on? We see Juneteenth merchandise t-shirts for sale on the Clans Racket Target and the line between cultural appropriation and cultural appreciation are always blurry. And so we have to be critical of whether corporations are promoting social good as a necessity or are they just doing it as a marketing strategy. But here I want to bring some reflection, some regard and some respect to the remembrance of Juneteenth. We are going to explore the idea of freedom and what it means to be free, specifically in America. We are going to answer some questions like why is Juneteenth important or why did it take so long to settle on a day to celebrate the emancipation of black people in America? And reflecting on the story, we have to understand that emancipation was a long process. It wasn't overnight. You didn't just put freedom in a microwave, press a button, and then it was done in five minutes. 
It wasn't as though Abraham Lincoln, with a mere flick of his wrist, signed the Emancipation Proclamation and all of a sudden around four million enslaved individuals strolled peacefully into the sunset. No, that's not what happened. Instead, what transpired and had been happening in various forms since the inception of slavery was that black individuals leaped from slave ships into icy ocean graves. They ran barefoot, they paddled canoes, sneaked onto trains, rode wagons, galloped on horseback, sent themselves in the mail or found other means to escape to freedom. By and large, when they got this limited freedom in the North, they fought tooth and nail for the freedom of those still trapped in the clutches of slavery, defying their oppressors with every breath they drew they revolted they rebelled and they resisted they embraced the pamphlet in the pulpit in a fire of abolitionism to strike down the giant of slavery broke their tools in silent protest the shattered piece is a testament to their refusal to be broken themselves this is the story of emancipation long and hard fought over centuries And so to grasp this story fully, we must understand what real freedom looks like. We must recognize that emancipation was just the first step toward freedom. Many black individuals left one form of slavery only to enter into another. From slavery to the convict leasing and prison system, from slavery to sharecropping, from slavery to the bonds of racial hatred, from slavery to various manifestations of Jim Crow and Jane Crow laws. Despite these challenges, it is crucial, though, to find something to celebrate, to find some joy. If the struggle for black freedom in America persists, then we need a point in history we can look back to and celebrate. We can't just only get caught in the narrative of black history where it is dominated by trauma and struggle. And this is where Juneteenth comes in. The black experience is often depicted in a one dimensional manner, defined by pain. But as the iconic soul band, Frankie Beverly and May sang joy and pain. Or like sunshine and rain, you can't have one without the other. So I want to talk about the joy and the pain and the true meaning of freedom. Now, Juneteenth wasn't always the most popular day to celebrate freedom. Some chose to celebrate September 22nd. This was the date of Lincoln's first Emancipation Proclamation. Some people celebrated it April 9th called Surrender Day. This was the day that General Robert E. Lee surrendered the Confederate Army. There were regional dates like July 5th in New York on that day in 1827. 4,000 black people paraded down Broadway in New York City to celebrate the end of slavery in their home state. But the main running theme through all these celebrations was celebrating freedom. So in studying Juneteenth, I hope you refuse to accept the narrative of immediate freedom. Because of some singular action of Abraham Lincoln, that's not what they were celebrating. Remember, black individuals were always the protagonist in their own emancipation story. And no, I cannot discount the efforts of so many white abolitionists, but they played the supporting role. But throughout history, a lot of black people ended up trading in their Fourth of July celebrations for Juneteenth celebrations over the years. And this shift likely stems from the sentiment that the Fourth of July represents an incomplete history. It doesn't reflect the whole truth about what black Americans faced at the time of the Declaration of Independence. Juneteenth then has always been the missing part. Frederick Douglass 
a black man who was one of the greatest freedom fighters, orators, and progressive minds in all of American history. Well, he thought the same thing when he wrote that famed and oft-quoted speech, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July? And I want to read an excerpt and think critically here and consciously and think about the pain for place that it comes from where a lot of black people came to resent the 4th of July and came to love and embrace Juneteenth. Now, Frederick Douglass, he gives this speech before a crowd of around 600 white abolitionists in 1852 just to set the stage. He delivered then one of the greatest speeches in his lifetime, maybe one of the greatest speeches of all time. And he said, quote, what have I or those I represent to do with your national independence? Are the great principles of political freedom and natural justice embodied in that Declaration of Independence extended to us? The rich inheritance of justice, liberty, prosperity and independence bequeathed by your fathers is shared by you, not by me. The sunlight that brought light and healing to you has brought strifes and death to me. This 4th of July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice. I must mourn. Whether we turn to the declarations of the past or to the professions of the present, the conduct of the nation seems equally hideous and revolting. America is false to the past, false to the present, and solemnly binds herself to be false to the future. What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer a day that reveals to him more than all other days of the year, the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim to him. Your celebration is a sham, your boasted liberty and unholy license, your national greatness, swelling vanity, your sounds of rejoicing are empty and heartless, your denunciation of tyrants, brass fronted impudence, your shouts of liberty, inequality, hollow mockery. Your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings with all your religious parade and solemnity are to him a mere bombast. Fraud, deception, impiety and hypocrisy, a thin veil to cover up crimes which would disgrace a nation of savages. There is not a nation on earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of the United States at this very hour. Unquote. There's a reason that this speech is still famous over 150 years later, especially to those who see days like the 4th of July as full of hypocrisy and America's broken promises surrounding race. It challenges us to question the very essence of our celebrations and the narratives we uphold. It's not a question of what to celebrate. Rather, it's an exploration of why and how we celebrate. There's a slogan I saw for Juneteenth that had this line. It kind of stuck out to me and it had a line and it crossed out the 4th of July. And then it said Juneteenth, 1865, because my ancestors were not free in 1776. Some might see this as divisive, but I think otherwise it challenges us to question the essence of the very celebrations and narratives we uphold. Juneteenth is one of those American black history stories that I Embraced as soon as I heard of it. And then got angry that I hadn't heard of it. We didn't celebrate Juneteenth growing up. But when I say embrace, I mean I have a deep affection for not only the celebration, but the history and the facts and the myth of it all. Now, to talk about Juneteenth, I want to remind you that we are picking up this story right after the period 
of American chattel slavery. And after the Civil War, where 620,000 to 720,000 had just died over the slavery question and the reality of America being ripped apart, ripped in half, ripped at its seams, was felt, seen, and lived by those during the time. Now, if you want a summary of how Juneteenth actually started, how it came to be, goes a little something like this. On June 19th, 1865, Union soldiers led by Major General Gordon Granger landed at the harbor in Galveston, Texas. And he brought with him something more valuable to enslaved people than all the gold in the world. News that the Civil War was over and that these enslaved people were henceforth and forever free. Now, if you really paid attention in history class, you'll realize that this was two and a half years after President Lincoln's initial Emancipation Proclamation, which was made official on January 1st, 1863. So then can you imagine the euphoria, the surge of hope and the profound heartbreak at realizing the delay in their freedom? This delay was not a result of benevolence, but rather a desperate attempt to cling on to an economy built on the institution of slavery. The Emancipation Proclamation, while monumental, was a mere proclamation without the force to ensure its enforcement, especially in Texas, where Union troops were scarce. According to the final census before the Civil War, enslaved people in Texas made up like 31 percent of their population. So white Texans were not going to give up this institution of slavery they built easily. Their economy was built on the backs of the enslaved who labored in their fields, workshops and homes, fueling the prosperity of a state deeply entrenched in this institution. The very fabric of their society was interwoven with the concept of human property. A concept that was about to be challenged by the winds of change. When President Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation in 1862, declaring that all enslaved people in Confederate held territory were to be set free, it was a transformative moment in American history. Yet, it was simply ink on paper until it could be enforced. The question remained, how would it be implemented, especially in a place like Texas, where Confederate sentiment ran deep and Union troops were not there yet? The tide began to turn when General Robert E. Lee, the commander of the Confederate forces, surrendered in April 1865. The Union Army was finally able to focus its resources and strength on the South, taking control of the remaining Confederate strongholds one by one. Texas was under martial law and the Union generals began issuing military orders to enforce the laws of the land, including the Emancipation Proclamation. One of these generals, Gordon Granger, arrived in Galveston, Texas on June 19th, 1865, a date now known as Juneteenth. And there he issued a series of orders, one of which was General Order Number Three. And it stated, quote, all persons not promptly complying with this order will be arrested as prisoners of war and sent north for imprisonment and their property forfeited. All lawless persons are hereby declared outlaws and enemies of the human race and will be dealt with accordingly, unquote. Some pretty strong language there, right? And the order goes on, 
quote, the people of Texas are informed that in accordance with the proclamation from the executive of the United States, all slaves are free. This includes an absolute equality of personal rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves. And the connection here to four existing between them becomes that between employer and higher labor. The freedmen are advised to remain quietly at their present homes and work for wages. They are informed that they will not be allowed to collect at military posts and that they will not be supported in idleness, either there or elsewhere, unquote. Now, a lot of people only read the first half. Yet this order, if you notice in the second part that I read, didn't immediately result in some complete freedom for the enslaved. In fact, the second half of order number three advised newly freed people to stay at their current homes and work for wages, essentially encouraging them to continue working for their former enslavers. It's a sobering reminder that the path to freedom was not as clear cut as we might like to believe. That's kind of like opening the door for someone who had been in prison their whole lives and encouraging them to stay inside. Is it really freedom when someone says you're free, but you need to stay put and work for the same masters and for pay you didn't negotiate this raises profound questions about the nature of freedom again what does it mean to be free are there degrees to freedom can you be considered truly free if you're advised to stay put and work for the same people who just claim ownership over you and this raises a philosophical question and we have to define freedom and at the very least it would be defined i think as being able to order your own actions and your actions not being confined to the will of another person. For the newly free people in Texas, their freedom was at best conditional. And yet, despite these limitations, the arrival of Union troops and the enforcement of the Emancipation Proclamation marked a significant step forward. Remember the analogy of the flag post. We have to look back in history not only to find the wars and atrocities and pain, but you also have to find moments of joy. There are so many glimpses of those moments of freedom that came to black people at various times and places. There was uncertainty, but there was joy. There was laughing. There was crying at those moments of freedom. Hamp Santee, who had been enslaved in Mississippi, said, quote, after surrender, I can remember the Negroes were so happy. They just rang bells, blowed horns and shouted like they were crazy. Then they brought a brand new rope and cut it up into little pieces. And they gave everyone a little piece. And whenever they looked at the rope, they should remember that they were free from bondage, unquote. Felix Haywood, a former enslaved person from San Antonio, said this about freedom, quote. Everybody went wild. We all felt like heroes and nobody had made us that way but ourselves. We were free right off. Colored folk started to move. They seemed to want to get closer to freedom so they knew what it was. Like it was a place or a city. We knew freedom was on us, but we didn't know what was to come with it. We thought we were going to get rich with the white folks. We thought we were going to be richer than the white folks because we knew how to work and the whites did not. And we didn't have to work for them anymore. But it didn't turn out that way. We soon found out that freedom could make folks proud, but it didn't make them rich. Unquote. Lafayette Price of Morgan county alabama said quote the jubilation of emancipation meant that i'm free as a frog because a frog had freedom to jump when and where he please unquote 
W.L. Boast, another formerly enslaved person, said freedom meant, quote, being just like a turtle, cautiously peeking out of the shell to understand the lay of the land, unquote. So whether it was unbounded joy, whether it was cautious joy, whether it was plain joy, it was joy at the release from bondage. There's one story I read of a man who kissed his mother a final goodbye, jumped over the fence, and they never saw him again. I imagine it was beautiful walking out of enslavement, but also scary because you would have no clue what you were walking into. But imagine the amazement at the realization that your day had finally come after hoping and praying all of your life, fighting all of your life. That day probably seemed so far off so many times and then it was finally there seemed impossible like you could never grasp it then it finally came imagine the joy but there are also those who are emotionless because they already knew about the emancipation proclamation through informal communication networks also known as the grapevine so when the official news came from what the enslaved called the long paper which was the newspaper when that news came they already knew about it they immediately went out looking for lost family as soon as they could. Enslavement ripped a lot of families apart, shredded their foundations. And there are these heartbreaking ads you can read. They were taken out by formerly enslaved people looking for their mothers. They were looking for their sisters. They were looking for their fathers. They were looking for their children. They were looking for their grandmothers, their brothers, their cousins and friends. I'll give you one example, one read, quote, information wanted for my husband and son. My son was sold in Richmond, Virginia. I don't know where they carried him to. My husband was not sold. I left him in Richmond, Virginia. And I have five children, Henry, Gabriel, Charles, Dortha, and Jacob, who were sold to a trader who lived in Texas. I am now old and don't think I should be here long and would like to see them before I die. Any information concerning them would be thankfully received by Eliza Holmes, Latonia, Texas. Heart-wrenching, heartbreaking, soul-stirring. There's another ad, and there are hundreds of these. There's these notes, these letters that were given to news editors during the time right after enslavement, and people were looking for their lost family. Another reads, quote, Information wanted of my people. My name is Moses Morris. I belong to a man by the name of Madison Sapp. We moved to Texas in 1860, or 61. My father's name was Nelson Morris or Nelson Mayland. My mother's name was Peggy. There were several brothers and sisters, Mary, Lizzie, Annie, Katie, and Martha. My father and mother moved to the state of Georgia, to Dell County about the year 1859. I was called Moses Sapp in slave times. Address all information to Moses Morris, Galveston, Texas, unquote. Ads like this were taken out in newspapers all over the country. We talk about the crisis for and the physical enslavement and bondage, but the psychological distress and the long lasting emotional damage of being separated from your kin. is far less spoken of. And then we get to a period after Juneteenth known as the scatter. And it's important to realize that many of the freed men and women ended up in what was known as contraband camps. Contraband camps were refugee camps, overcrowding, food and clothing shortages, poor sanitary conditions and constant danger could be found there. But there, too, began the new reality of access to education and employment and a reconstitution of family life. There were positives, but make no mistake, this was a humanitarian crisis at these contraband camps. 
Paul Harrison, who wrote for The Guardian, said, quote, many ended up in encampments called contraband camps that were often near union bases. However, conditions were unsanitary and food supplies limited. Shockingly, the contraband camps were actually former slave pens. Meaning newly free people ended up being kept virtually prisoners back in the same cells that had previously held them. In many such camps, disease and hunger led to countless deaths. Often, the only way to leave the camp was to agree to go back to work on the very same plantations which the slaves had recently escaped, unquote. And again, we're exploring this concept of freedom. Again, we must ask ourselves, what does it truly mean to be free? We must confront the brutality of Union soldiers, the poisonous stereotypes that circulated. Painting black people as idle, encouraging them to remain tethered to plantations, forced the enslaved back into the jaws of labor. Yes, they received a wage, but let's not mistake this for fairness or justice. This was not a wage they could negotiate. This was not a profit they could share in. Most of the fruit of their labor, the fruit of their blood, sweat and tears was swallowed up by the U.S. Treasury. It's like replacing one chain with another more subtle, but just as binding. So when we talk about freedom, we must dig deep. We must ask ourselves, does it encompass the freedom to earn a livelihood? Does it involve some sort of reparations for the blood that was shed, for the lives that were lost, for the time that was stolen from those who were dragged into enslavement? Freedom, my friends, is not just about breaking chains. It's about building bridges. It's about ensuring that those who have been wronged are made right, that those who have been silenced are given a voice. It's about recognizing the humanity, the dignity, the worth of every individual. Anything less is a facade, a mere shadow of the true meaning of freedom. So what about some form of repair or recompense? Former enslaved person Jenny Webb captured this sentiment and this problem when she said years later, quote, when the war came on to set us free, we was told that we would get 40 acres and a mule. We never did, unquote. You've probably heard that promise of 40 acres and a mule. It's not some tall tale. It's a sobering reality. Union General William T. Sherman's vow to deliver 40 acres and a mule to newly liberated families stands as one of the grandest pledges ever made. And equally, one of the most profound betrayals experienced by freed black people in American history. As the Union Army advanced claiming Confederate territory, a question loomed large. What did freedom truly signify for those emerging from the shadow of slavery? The answer, my friends, was not just freedom from bondage, but also the freedom to forge a livelihood, to lay claim to a piece of this earth. Consider their plight. No property, no wealth, no education, nowhere to call home, no means of economic independence. Now, let's not sanctify Sherman as some sort of savior for this 40 acre and a mule idea. He didn't conjure this idea of land distribution from thin air. Rather, it was the voice of black ministers in Savannah, Georgia, who articulated this need, proclaiming, quote, the way we can best take care of ourselves is to have land and turn it and till it by our own labor, unquote. Land has always been tied to freedom for black people in all cultures for that matter. Freedom to work the land, hunt the land, get from the land and give back to the land. Land has been synonymous with freedom. For all cultures. To cultivate it. Land to freedom is what fuel is to an engine. Freedom demands space. 
So Sherman issued his special order number 15, mandating the seizure of 400,000 acres from Confederate landowners to be parceled out to black families and 40 acre plots. By the time June rolled around, this land had been apportioned among 40,000 of the total 4 million emancipated. Mules, though, weren't part of the original plan. But the seeds of promise were taking root. The plan was in motion. Then, like a sudden frost, President Andrew Johnson, a man who once owned slaves and professed himself a white supremacist, brought the plan to a chilling halt. President Johnson, in a tragic reversal of fortune, overturned Sherman's order and returned the land to the previous owners, the very slave owners and Confederate traders from whom it had been taken. Now consider this. I've looked into the value of that promise of 40 acres and a mule and those 40,000 liberated souls in that land, and it would equate to an astonishing $640 billion today. Booker T. Washington, a towering figure in this epoch of black history, pondered the fate of these newly freed individuals. He observed that the initial jubilation of emancipation was fleeting, saying, quote, the wild rejoicing on part of the emancipated colored people lasted before a brief period. For I noticed that by the time they returned to their cabins, there was change in their feelings. The great responsibility of being free, of having charge of themselves, of having to think and plan for themselves and their children seemed to take possession of them. It was very much like suddenly turning a youth out into the world to provide for himself in a few hours. The great questions had been thrown upon them to be solved. There was the question of a home, a living, the rearing of children, education, citizenship, and the establishment and support of churches. Was it any wonder that within a few hours the wild rejoicing ceased as a feeling of deep gloom seemed to pervade the slave quarters? To some it seemed that now they were in actual possession of it, freedom was a more serious thing than they had expected it to be, unquote. These reflections by Washington underscore the complexity of freedom granted post-emancipation. Freedom was not just a cause for celebration. It was also a heavy mantle of responsibility. And as we approach the commemoration of Juneteenth, we must remember that this complexity remained the struggle for freedom. For genuine emancipation did not end with the legal abolition of slavery. So as we partake in the traditional Juneteenth festivities, sipping red soda pop, hanging out with family and friends, watching parades, lighting off fireworks, savoring the scent of meat sizzling on the grill. We must resist the temptation to view emancipation through a sanitized lens or to reduce this very significant and profound holiday with a deep history in Galveston, Texas, spread to the rest of the United States. We must reduce the urge to treat it as something superficial, something without significance. We must always challenge the romanticized narrative of emancipation. Freedom was not handed over on a silver platter. It was earned at a steep cost. So black Americans celebrated a hard won freedom to let their flag fly high and Savor those moments of joy amidst the ongoing struggle. The formerly enslaved Hayes Turner said, quote, 
The 19th of June wasn't the exact day the Negro was freed, but that's the day they told them that they was free. And my daddy told me they whooped and hollered and bored holes in trees with augers and stopped it up with gunpowder and lit it up. And that would become their blast for celebration. As we contemplate this progression, let's not forget the narrative of land acquisition for the commemoration of Juneteenth. When black individuals started to secure land of their own, some pieces of this land were generously donated to honor Juneteenth by the black community. And this act of self-determination was born out of necessity as there were white individuals who actively sought to suppress the celebration denying access to their facilities and coercing black people to abandon their festivities and return to work. Let's reflect upon Reverend Jack Gates, who raised a thousand dollars and that would eventually purchase Emancipation Park in Houston, Texas. One of the earlier celebratory locations of Juneteenth. As you celebrate Juneteenth, let his name and story resonate. And while we're honoring the memory of those who have fought for Juneteenth, let's remember Al Edwards, affectionately known as Mr. Juneteenth, the black political representative who played an instrumental role in recognizing the abolition of slavery as a statewide holiday in Texas. These are the steps that were taken to get Juneteenth over time as a federal holiday. Laying the groundwork paying homage to Miss Opal Lee, the grandmother of Juneteenth, whose tireless advocacy was instrumental in the fight to make Juneteenth a federal holiday. Her journey, a 2.5 mile walk symbolizing the 2.5 years it took for enslaved people in Texas to learn of their freedom serves as a profound testament to the ongoing struggle for recognition. She didn't just walk that in one state. She walked it across the country. When I envision Juneteenth, my mind doesn't rest on the red, white, and blue flag. Instead, I contemplate the original Juneteenth flag, one adorned with red, black, and green. The colors that reverberate the echo of that history, the red for the blood of the enslaved, shed in their pursuit of freedom. Black for the color of their skin, the embodiment of their resilience, and green the ground upon which they stood, the land that they stood on to affirm their freedom. Freedom has never been a straightforward journey. It's a struggle, a bumpy ride that has continued from the days of slavery through to this very moment. And remember this one more thing. Some people fought their entire lives for emancipation and never witnessed it on Juneteenth. We remember them, honor their struggle and their commitment to a cause greater than themselves. The fight continues, but there's joy in the struggle. So celebrate Juneteenth, celebrate Juneteenth, celebrate Juneteenth. Despite the hardships, we must never undervalue the impact of celebrating freedom. And this, my friends, is the true spirit of Juneteenth. Happy Juneteenth, everyone. That was another episode of the Humanity Archive podcast. And I say this with all the sincerity I can muster. Thank you for listening and celebrating Juneteenth with me, whoever you are. This podcast is brought to you by Patreon. You can go to patreon.com backslash the Humanity Archive. And that's how you can support this podcast. I can't do it without you. And also you will be a part of our book club and it's a pay what you can model. So whether you have $2 a month, 
$5 a month, $10 a month, $50 a month. Everybody gets access to the book club and the podcast perks where you can comment on the episodes with me responding and talking to you. You can also request episodes that you might want to hear and ask questions about the episodes that will be forthcoming. So be sure to head over to patreon.com backslash the humanity archive. And again, thank you for listening and I'll see you next time.